This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are delighted to welcome you to Season 13 of our show. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is senior correspondent at National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology, and director of the Center for the Study of Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. He is also affiliated professor of spirituality at the Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio, Texas. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. We're going to do a larger catch-up later in the show, but maybe talk Talk to us about what the beginning of the school year has been like for both of you. Heidi, why don't you start us out? Well, first, it's so good to see the two of you again, and it's so great to be back for season 13. Lucky 13. We're not going <laughs> to skip 13 and go right to 14 like elevators or anything. <laughs> back to school has been great here. I have two high schoolers now, so it. my husband and I are jo- enjoying being the parents of two high schoolers, and so far, so good. It was a great summer in terms of enjoying family. I remember last year I reported that I'd been to a bunch of concerts, and this year not so much. But I did go to one a couple weeks ago to one of my new favorite bands that I've been introduced to now, OAR of a Revolution. Oh, yes. I love OAR. Do you? Oh, gosh. We have a shared musical. Another shared musical (laughs) taste. And it was Goo Goo Dolls was one of the co-headliners. They were okay, let me just say. It was a trip back to the 90s. But we survived the hot weather here in Chicago, and now it's even starting to feel slightly fall-like. So doing pretty well. How about you, Dan? How's back to school for you? Well, I'm jealous of the OAR show. I've seen them four or five times over the years. And uh, yeah, a huge fan. I love Crazy Game of Poker, 3AM. There's so many great songs. If hey, you don't girl. Know hey, them. girl. Yeah. So good. So good. <laughs> and they're around my age, too. So I became aware of them as they were coming up. They were pretty big in the early 2000s. And it's interesting to see them opening for Goo Goo Dolls. I saw that summer tour and I missed them when they were in Indianapolis. I was hoping to be able to catch them and it just didn't work. But that's really cool. Yeah, it's been a, a crazy couple of weeks, as I'm sure it has been for parents like you, Heidi, who have kids going back to school at whatever level. We are up and running. We are in our second week of classes here at St. Mary's and the broader 
tri-campus community. One of the courses that I'm co-teaching this fall, it's a really unique course, is a tri-campus course where there's a group of instructors from St. Mary's, Notre Dame, and Holy Cross College, and we have students in our respective campuses, and we all meet together on Tuesday. This is a sustainability and theology course. And so we look at sustainability in the tri-campus community on the three campuses, meet with guest lecturers, take tours of the kind of sustainable operations and things like here at St. Mary's, we have this sustainable organic farm. Holy Cross College has other initiatives. Notre Dame has a bunch. And so that's really cool. We have a different location and a different campus where all roughly 40 of our students from the three classes come together on Tuesdays. And on Thursdays, we have our respective campus kind of seminar. So it's really fun, really exciting. It's the first time I've done something on this scale. We're very proud of the fact that in the Holy Cross charism in this, what we call the five 46556 zip code, which is Notre Dame, Indiana, we have three campuses that all have a share a common heritage. And this is a course rooted in Laudato Si, rooted in sustainability, rooted in theology that brings everybody together. So that's really cool. It's nice to be working with my colleagues and to get to know more students from the other campuses, in addition to all the exciting stuff going on here at the center and and so forth. So David, you, you're also an academic. How are things going at the beginning of the semester for you and your family? So this is our first week of classes. So as we're recording this on Tuesday, I will be teaching classes through the afternoon and evening today. Last week, we had new student orientation at the Institute of Pastoral Studies, so I got a chance to meet a lot of the students. And also, I was invited by the dean to give a kind of introductory overview to the ethos of the Institute of Pastoral Studies. So I had about 10 minutes to talk about that, and that was just a delightful experience. I really enjoy reflecting on the mission and thinking about kind of the vision for what we're doing there as an educational unit within Loyola University, Chicago, and my talk was well-received. Students and my fellow faculty colleagues sort of came up afterwards and said, really liked what you said, so that's always fun. However, because I am a severe introvert, I spent basically the weekend recovering from public performance and having to do meet and greets and all of that. So I'm going to be monitoring my energies through the next couple of weeks as we get back into the rhythms of the year. And also, we're a couple of weeks into having our kids going back to school. They're now at the same program again. It's an academic center connected to the high school about a mile from where we live. And so far, even though it is a little bit tougher than what my younger child is used to, everyone seems to be doing well and finding their own level in the midst of all this. So all of that is going really great. And I'm just delighted to see the two of you again. I have missed you over the summer, and it is great to be back and doing this again. And it's great to reconnect with our listeners as well. I want to give an especial shout-out to some of our Patreon supporters, Andrew DeLeon, Buck Gregory, Andrew Neller, or Kneller. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, and I apologize. If Neller. I got Neller. My, Andrew uh, Neller. And shout-out to him as my college roommate. Oh, so there nice you go. So nice to hear that Andrew and his family support the podcast. Yeah, and, and Candice Shalupka as well. And we'll, we'll be talking talking more as the season progresses about ways that we are going to be trying to connect more fully with the Patreon community. We've all had busy lives and have occasionally let that slide to the side. So we thank everyone who supports us for your patience, and we hope that you will tell your friends about the show. Coming up on the show today, in our first segment, we're going to be doing a much larger catch-up. We're going to be looking at what the summer has held for the three of us 
and and getting back into the swing of things with that. And then in our second segment, we'll be looking at what the summer has held for former President Donald Trump and the four indictments that have been handed down. And then in our final segment, we'll be looking at the current climate crisis and looking ahead to the season of creation that will be kicking off soon in the Catholic Church. So all of that is waiting for us here on The Francis Effect. Thank you so much for being with us for Season 13. We'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran, and I'm here with David Dalt and Heidi Schlump. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. As we approach the unofficial end of summer, this Labor Day, we here at The Francis Effect want to catch up on what we've been doing during our break. Our other two segments of this episode will look forward to Trump's legal problems, of course, and to the continuing challenge of global climate change. But for now, we want to take a brief moment to look back. What were the highlights of summer 2023? What were the challenges or other notable happenings for each of the three of us? Heidi, as we heard at the top of the show, you have a new job title, so maybe we can start there. How were your last three months as editor of NCR? Well, two words, very busy. I guess three <laughs> words. Very busy. Summer is supposed to be a slower news time, especially in the church as things shut down in the Vatican over August at least. But that was not the case this summer. I'm thinking back to when we last did our our last show in last season, it was mid-May. So I'll go back that far and just hit some of the highlights of what was so newsy this summer. Back in late May, early June, Everybody inside the church and some outside the church were talking about the controversy with the L.A. Dodgers and the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. If you aren't up on that controversy, you can read about it at NCR and other publications. That landed me a spot on CN talking about a column I wrote about that controversy. And then as the summer developed, we had lots of news about controversial and rogue bishops. So at the same time, we had the the announcement that the investigation was happening with Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas. We had news coming shortly after that about Bishop Richard Sticka of Knoxville, Tennessee. So Strickland has, over the months and years, continued to be very outspoken in his lack of support for Pope Francis, shall we say. I think just last week he was criticizing the Synod, saying that, well, it will reveal the quote-unquote true schismatics. Well, meanwhile, over in Tennessee, Bishop Sticka was having a lot of problems in terms of his handling of abuse cases and also his management style. So he eventually resigned at the end of June, and you can read NCR Brian Fraga's reporting about that. And then all summer and continuing even now, we have this controversy brewing between the Carmelite Order of Sisters down in Texas and their bishop, Michael Olson, with lots of 
the latest news. It's hard to keep up with all of it. A lot of lack of respect on both ways there between the sisters and their bishop. So we've been covering that over at, at Global Sisters Report. And then the papal news didn't stop. In early June, kind of as a surprise, we learned that Pope Francis had abdominal surgery and there was some concerns, obviously his age, but he recovered well. In fact, that week he announced 21 new cardinals and we'll be having a consistory at the end of September. He also named a new head for the Dicastery of the Doctrine of the Faith, so Archbishop Victor Manuel Fernandez. And then I thought, oh, well, now this advanced age pope had this serious surgery. Well, he'll slow down, right? Nope. In August, off he was to Lisbon for World Youth Day, where he made some exciting and interesting comments about how everyone is welcome in the church. We see a lot of people using his phraseology of todos, 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 um, everyone, everyone, everyone. And later this week, by the time this podcast drops, he'll be in Mongolia for his next trip. So lots of news. And my own work travel, I was busy in June at the Catholic Theological Society of America in Milwaukee, where I saw lots of friends of NCR, including uh, you, Dan. And then in July, I went to the Women of the Church Conference. I was a speaker there in Collegeville, my first trip to Collegeville. And in both places, I met a lot of Francis Effect Pod listeners who came up to me and said they love the podcast. It was really great to see them. So after about three and a half years of successful editorship at NCR, I decided when everyone else is going back to school, I'm going to go back to reporting. So I'm really excited about my new position and the chance to do investigative reporting again, but I'm going to be still here on the Francis Effect podcast. So that's how I'm looking forward. But see, I told you it was a busy summer when you put it all (laughs) together, right? What about you guys? What are you looking back at the summer about? Well, I don't know it's not a competition. I think we might all be tied in busyness for sure, but I was all over the place as well. Regular listeners will know, and and those friends of the podcast who are theologians or religiously adjacent as academics will appreciate that June is often conference season for us. So Heidi, you mentioned CTSA in Milwaukee where we saw each other. That was my kind of fourth conference or conference-like gathering since the, toward the end of the academic year. So I, it began for me with the International Network of for the Study of Spirituality conference in Waterford, Ireland. So in May, I was in Ireland. Then CTS at Sacred Heart University, that's the College Theology Society in Connecticut. We, in my province, Holy Name Province, had its final chapter as an independent province before we restructure in October as one U.S. province. And, and my provincial leadership had asked me to be one of the speakers at that. So there, there was that in between. the So it was CTS one weekend, the provincial chapter in Albany, New York. And then I flew out to Milwaukee for CTSA all in one week. It was a pretty wild adventure. And then came back to South Bend, where I was the site coordinator this year for the International Thomas Merton Society Conference, which was a great success. We had about 215 people, wonderful keynote addresses, which you can now view on YouTube at the Tuesdays with Merton YouTube page. Just an amazing event. We had some of the keynote speakers included people like Maria Clara Binghamer from Brazil, Sister Simone Campbell from Nuns on the Bus and Network, Sister Sophia Park, Dr. Shannon D. Williams. It was a whole who's who lineup and it was very well received. So we were really thrilled to have been the hosts and to put on such an engaging conference. And then the week after that, I traveled to St. Louis to be the keynote speaker at the Marianist Priest and 
Brothers Annual Assembly, which was a great honor. And it's great to spend time with those guys and their colleagues and partners in ministry. After that, I finally got a chance to have some downtime where I visited family in upstate New York and ran a couple road races, as is my want in July, or as is my punishment, as it may be, especially July 4th when I run the peach tree in Atlanta, Georgia. I always, <laughs> it's a joke, but it's also true that I sweat more standing still getting ready to run that race on July morning in, in, in Atlanta than you do running some races the rest of the year in other parts of the country. But it's a great spirit. It's a great opportunity, great folks. So so that's been, that's the highlights of the summer. It's, there were other things as well, including, yeah, just little things here and there. But, but it's been a good summer and I'm excited for the new academic year. And here we are underway with that. David, what's your summer been like? Well, it's been very family-centric. Longtime listeners will know that both of our kids, they do fine in school. Our older is 13, our younger is 11, and all that. But they have been coming home from school fairly regularly with just a lot of anxiety or a lot of exhaustion. And it's like they're leaving it all on the field. And for a while, we figured that this is just normal. But then there were some aspects of it that began to concern us. And so over the summer, both of the kids have undergone a pretty extensive battery of testing and evaluation. And what we have come to the end of the process understanding is that both of our children are on the autistic spectrum, each in their own individual way because it is a spectrum, and that our older is dealing with some actual clinical anxiety disorders and our younger is dealing with some attention deficit hyperactive disorder diagnoses. All of this helps us to understand more fully what has been going on up to this point. And again, there were never like moments where their schoolwork suffered or they had breakdowns or meltdowns, but it is helping us to figure out ways now to work with the school to get them support so that they're not quite so exhausted by the process of being in school and doing those sorts of things. And so I just want to shout out and say solidarity and empathy to anyone who has ever dealt with a school system trying to get support for your kids, because it has been almost a full-time job this summer, both kind of getting the diagnoses in place, but then also figuring out how to navigate in Chicago and maybe in other places. Sometimes these are called individualized education plans. Here in Chicago, they're called 504 plans, but they are they're ways to support our kids. And so now we know what the next steps are. And it has been a good process. We've all learned a lot from it and we're all rowing in the same direction with it, but it has also been an exhausting process. And in and around that, I got a lot of good writing done, a lot of very good thinking done, and I'm looking forward to this year because some of my writing projects that have been in process for a long time are going to be finished and tied off with a bow, and others are underway. Some of them are taking classes that I've been teaching over the last few years and turning them into manuscripts, and others are ground-up, standalone projects, but I'm looking forward to all of these seeing the light of day in the next few years, as time permits. One summer development we haven't mentioned here was the decline of one of what used to be one of our favorite social media sites and the changing of its name to X. I know, Dan, you wrote about this over the summer in your NCR column. I've moved. I'm still on 
Twitter or X, but I've moved over to Instagram and threads and have a thriving social media presence there. I'm wondering about you guys. What has this meant for you? And I know, David, you've been pretty active on social as well. Yeah, David, maybe you can start with this one because you are probably the most engaged on Twitter of the three of us. I refuse to call it X just because yeah. it's, a, it's so cumbersome I, and oh, it's just ridiculous. And what, do we, what do we call it? The social media site formerly known as Twitter, <laughs> well, you know, like Prince? So we're all roughly Chicago-centric and the show certainly had its origins in Chicago. And here in Chicago, longtime listeners may know that there is a large structure downtown <laughs> that they keep trying to tell us is the Willis Tower and we keep adamantly calling the Sears Tower because that's what it is. And so I have that same spirit about Twitter. It's still Twitter to me. And you're correct. Twitter is where I go to think with other people. And it has really changed the way that I work on projects because doing a Twitter thread, it forces you to think in discrete chunks. It forces you to connect those chunks together. And then when people come in and interact with those threads, they can point out places where the movement from A to B to C hasn't been clear to them. And so I really have relied on this over the last two or three years as a place to go to work out my thinking. I'm still trying to use it as that, but the algorithms and the changes have made it a lot more difficult. I will say I am blocking a lot more people now, and I am not sure what the future holds. I have tried to move to some other platforms, but but in each of those cases, whether we're talking about Mastodon or Threads or Blue Sky or what have you, I haven't found the same feedback. I haven't found the same support for thinking that I have found with my Twitter community. And maybe that's just a matter of time and building up the social relationships in, on these other platforms. But I will say if Twitter eventually goes away from my life, it will leave a large hole because I have really appreciated the people who have become thought partners with me on that platform. How about you two? Well, I have been having a love-hate relationship with Twitter for a couple of years. I chronicled this a few years ago as well in my column when I talked about taking a Lent away from social media in general. And when I came back, I really was truly changed by the process. I just have not felt the same kind of need or interest or temptation to get involved in some of the back and forth. I just am less engaged with it, which I think is a good thing. I experience it as a good thing. As I wrote in the column that Heidi referenced, I don't think I have much to update there. I'm still waiting to see what's going on. I have not made the move over to threads, and I don't think I will. If Twitter slash X burns down or just continues to devolve as it has, I think I'm just going to Irish goodbye it. I'm going to slowly slip away, which is par for the course. It's fine. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it. For a long time, I think I've wanted... I. I I am somewhat jealous of people who cut the cord altogether with social media. I think it's tough when you are a public academic and somebody who also is a columnist at NCR, where you do need to stay connected and help get the word out about your projects and other things that are happening. So I, I do see value in it, but I don't, I don't know. I think I'm going to hang around and see what's happening for the time as it is, and we'll go from there. Heidi, you've made the move over to Instagram and Threads. Has that been a better experience for you? Well, not so much on Threads yet. And I should be honest in saying I'm technically off at NCR this week, taking a break between my two positions. But one of my goals this week is to get my social media in better shape. And so I went on Instagram professionally in the middle of the summer, and I've been testing it out there. Obviously, we have 
pretty successful social media at NCR and under our new digital editor, John Grasso. And he and our previous social media editor, Shannon Evans, have had a lot of success on Instagram. This is a generalization, but I've noticed over the last month or two that Twitter is a place for more conservative folks. And so when I post things on Twitter, all I get is attacked. Whereas on Instagram, I'm finding like-minded Catholic and spiritual people where we can do some of this. I love the way you called it that kind of thought partners where we can think things through together and share things. And I'm getting connected with some really cool folks over there. So like most things in life, and as our Christian story tells us, when there's death, sometimes there's new life somewhere else. So we'll see. <laughs> but it's hard, it's hard to apply something so positive to the cesspool that is sometimes social media, isn't it? Gosh, so true. Yeah. Well, here's a question. Maybe this is a good place for us to end the segment is as we look back over the summer, one of the big cultural and social events of the summer was Barbenheimer. I will go first by saying I have seen both movies they definitely met or exceeded my expectations. I am a big Christopher Nolan fan. My favorite movie of all time is Inception, which is one of his classics. Barbie was also a delight. It was really engaging and very moving at times with a great message, I felt. Did you two see either or both? And what did you think? So it's funny you should mention that because I actually have plans to go see Oppenheimer after this show as soon as we're done recording. But I did see Barbie. I dressed in pink, went with my daughter who had already seen it. She's 14. And I have to say it was funny. It was interesting. But it was also sad. And there were parts of the stuff about patriarchy that really just reminded me of the limits of our culture. And so that part was a little bit difficult. We ran a couple essays about it at NCR, and I highly recommend them both, especially the one from Kathy Caveney, theologian and lawyer, who really looked at some theological issues in that movie that I bet people missed. So, And I'm getting ready for Oppenheimer because I know it's going to be heavy, so I'll have to let you know what I thought next, next episode. What about you, David? Did you have a chance to see either of them? So I haven't seen Barbie yet, not for any principled reason, but just because it's been a busy summer. But I really want to for many of the reasons that you have named. And my wife and I go and see movies together. And so I'm excited to talk about Barbie with her after we get a chance to see it. I did see Oppenheimer Longtime listeners may know that the Manhattan Project particularly and the sort of nuclear weapons establishment more generally is a perpetual interest of mine. And so I found the movie to be historically accurate as much as a biopic like this can be, but I also found it to be incredibly moving. And there were several points where I was moved to tears by what I was seeing on screen and the artful way that it was being told and then at the end of the movie, no spoilers, but the movie lands with just such a solid moment of pathos and despair. I sat in the theater as the credits were rolling, and in fact, I'm feeling it right now. I wept for about seven or eight minutes after the movie was done because I was so deeply affected by the story. And I'm really... I'm really excited to get a chance to watch the movie again. I'm not sure that I'll go back and see it in the theaters, but there's a lot there to chew on and to think about. And it really has enlivened for me. I'm grateful that Oppenheimer sort of came out because it has helped to 
rekindle for me an interest that I've had for a while, which is to develop a course to teach about nuclear security and Catholic social teaching. And so I'm in conversation with my dean about getting that course up and running probably for spring of 2025 at the Institute of Pastoral Studies. But part of the momentum for me coming back to that longtime desire was seeing Oppenheimer this summer. So it was just a fantastic film. Yeah, there's definitely, both movies have a lot of theological valences, and uh, I agree with Heidi that Kathy's piece in NCR was great. It was something that I think a lot of theologians were picking up on, the story basically of Genesis and the fall, and, and really a very Augustinian way of thinking about what's going on there. It's a, a kind of gendered role reversal of how it's often told, but it also shows that humanity, it is what it is, and the effects of original sin and what those consequences are. I, I'm looking forward to hearing what you think, Heidi, of Oppenheimer and David, what you think of Barbie? We'll have to regroup in one of our pop culture roundups, or at least in our banter up front in a future episode. Until then, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in a moment with our next segment. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here with Dan Horan and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. A lot happened while we were away for the summer, but perhaps the most significant developments, from the standpoint of American democracy at least, have been a series of indictments handed down in various jurisdictions against former President Donald Trump. As of this recording, there are four indictments, three in federal courts in New York, Washington, D.C., and Florida, and one at the state level in Fulton County, Georgia. In total, these indictments bring 91 counts against former President Trump and various alleged co-defendants. The range of charges is vast, spanning from the alleged withholding of top-secret documents to election interference to conspiracy charges brought under Georgia's robust anti-racketeering laws. Conservative commentators have decried these indictments, claiming that they amount to violations of Trump's free speech rights at best and outright interference in the 2024 elections at worst. David, there's clearly a lot to unpack here. Where should we start? I want to say one of the things that I dived deep into over the summer was the concept of prison abolition and the entire discourse around that that comes out of sort of race relations and critical race theory and thinking about the ways in which we use incarceration in our country and the legal system to create subgroups and to then bring violence against those subgroups. So part of what I'm coming to all of this with is that in the back of my mind. And I've really been looking at my joy, my my participation in as each of these indictments has come down. Yay, the legal system is working and the bad guys will get punished. I've been sort of thinking about that reflex that I have. So part of what I want to introduce into this is we are looking at, I hope, an example of the legal system working. 
And we're looking at an example of what philosophers and political philosophers would call the rule of law. At the same time, we are looking at the mechanisms of a system that does operate unequally. Even things around the taking of a mugshot. So just in the last couple of weeks as we're taping this, Fulton County took a mugshot of former President Donald Trump and released that mugshot. And I'm thinking about some of the commentators, particularly on MSNBC, who there was one African-American commentator in particular who said, this was a significant moment for me because Trump insisted and made sure that in the past, African-American young men had their lives sort of put into public with mugshots. And now this shows that the system is dealing with him equally in a way that maybe it has hasn't before. So there's a lot of complexity here. I will say I have been obsessive about listening to the commentaries and as each of these indictments has dropped and as the details have come out and as the back and forth between the defense and the prosecution has begun to unfold in each of these four venues, I have been really adamantly bringing it all in. So I have a lot of thoughts about this, but they aren't yet necessarily coherent because there's just so much. It's like drinking from a fire hose. I'd be interested in what you two are thinking about it. I've been following it fairly closely myself, and I have very mixed feelings about it. I think there's a part of me that, like you were saying, David, wants to believe, as many others do, that maybe the legal system will prevail. But that is also very interesting, given that I totally am in alignment with your assessment that we have a broken and unjust legal system by and large, at least for ordinary people. So it's a class issue. It's a race issue. It's a an issue in which somebody who is the former president of the United States gets a lot of special treatment. We've seen that, as you said, regarding the mugshot, the first three indictments when he surrendered himself to authorities, the normal sort of procedure or processing wasn't inflicted upon him, as it were. I do think it's interesting. I'm intrigued by the state-level criminality and the RICO charges in Georgia, in part because, as has been covered pretty widely, even if President Trump or some other successor to Joe Biden in the next term were to gain office and offer a pardon to Trump, you could not pardon. That's for federal crimes only. And so the president can't pardon somebody at the state level. And while many states, a governor can grant clemency or pardon or commute sentences, Georgia has, for its very racist history, reasons that the governor can't do that outright, at least without certain clauses that are built into the system, certain sort of procedures that have to be followed. For instance, they have to have served their time for at least five years. And then there's a independent board that makes these recommendations rather than the kind of one-off possible pay-for-play quid pro quo concerns around a single elected official. So Georgia is a very hard place to be granted even a state-level pardon or some kind of clemency. And so that that should be very frightening for somebody like Trump. The one other thought that I've had is reflected in something I wrote about last year in in one of my columns. When I was in South Africa on a lecture tour, I was watching, at that time, there was the live coverage of the January 6th hearings in Congress. And I remember reflecting on what it was like to be in another country on the other side of the world and watching the United States from the vantage point, something I've experienced many times before, but also this kind of realization or re-realization or re-awareness of the fact that the U.S., despite our internal self-delusion about how unique we are and we're the best country and this, that, and the other, you hear this often, we are just like everybody else. (laughs) We are like a lot of other countries in that for some 250 years, we've not had, or 200 and a quarter 
century years. We've not had a prosecuted former chief executive. Those days are over, I guess. One other thing I might say, I know I'm offering a long response, but I also recently watched the HBO series White House Plumbers about the Watergate break-in and Nixon. I really enjoyed that series. It's well acted. Woody Harrelson's in it. There's a, there are a number of really great actors in there. But it was just a reminder of, by the Trump administration standards, the Nixon affair was pretty stupid. It was like pretty low level. I don't want to undermine the seriousness of the violation of public oath and responsibilities and the law. But I don't know. There was a meme going around for a time that said Trump made George W. Bush look like a good president, even though he committed a number of alleged war crimes around Iraq in particular. But I do think like Nixon's sort of getting dusting off in light of these four indictments. Heidi, what do you think about all this? Like you, David, I've also been glued to the TV with so much of this news. And part of it is the way it intersects with the presidential race, which is already underway. But at NCR, we were looking at what are the Catholic angles to this story? And of course, we care about the story more generally as well. But one that our staff writer, Brian Fraga, dug up was that among the 19 co-defendants or co-indictees in Georgia was a woman lawyer, Jenna Ellis, who was previously special counsel to the Thomas More Society, which is a kind of Catholic-led law firm here in Illinois that used to do a lot with religious liberty issues, still takes cases on that, but recently branched out into sort of election-related litigation efforts. And they she joined this firm right as it was ramping up what it was launching into this initiative that involved challenging election results in swing states that Biden won. Now, she's not Catholic herself. She's an evangelical Christian, and she was a senior legal advisor and attorney to Trump, and she's been indicted as well. There also was a Lutheran pastor among those indicted, so there's some religious angles to that story as well. But I think the broader issue for us as a paper and for me is the number of Catholics who continue to support Trump and the story that his popularity among not just fringe Republicans, but among the Republican core and the way in which the other folks who are running for the Republican nomination, are many of whom are fearful to criticize him, is frightening, (laughs) I'm going to say, as an American and lover of democracy and concerning as a Catholic as well. So I think now that the court date has been announced and it's the day, is it the day before or the day after Super Tuesday, right around Super Tuesday? Day before. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see the intersection of his legal troubles and the campaign as it goes forward. One of the things that's caught my attention, too, is just the sure magnitude of what it takes to prosecute and defend oneself in one court proceeding like this and have four sort of concurrent. A lot of people, I know the Trump legal team has been filing motions to try to delay on all fronts to 2026 or something beyond that. And as I think, Heidi, you were mentioning, the Jack Smith trial, which was set for March, was was already established. There are these other hearings and stuff that are lined up, if not everything being locked in just yet. I have my doubts about whether it's just making 2024 really messy because there will be some trials that are beginning and you can't, it's a violation of one's civil liberties to be tried twice in two different places. So they're going to have to coordinate. 
I don't know. What do you two think? Is this going to benefit Trump? Because he's been trying to spin it in such a way that he's being persecuted and this is the deep state and Joe Biden is using his executive powers and the justice system to go after political enemies. I think for most rational people who look at the facts, even some of Trump's defenders have said, I don't agree that he should be indicted or arrested or in jail, but his behavior is inappropriate. Chris Christie has been throwing these kinds of lines around Mike Pence as well. So I... Is anything going to happen? Is this does this help him? Does this hurt him? What are your thoughts about this? I will say I am really in line with an analysis from, again, a thought partner that I engage with a lot on social media, a writer and thinker that I respect very highly, Adam Kotzko, who basically says, regardless of the optics of this, we had a crisis in our democracy. And it was centered around a group of people for whom Trump is a figurehead and who Trump is a full participant. There is no plausible denial here. And we, if we are going to say that we are a culture, a country that is governed by the rule of law, then we have to let the rule of law actually work. And we can't say because of the station of this person, we will interrupt the processes of law and we will make a special process for this particular person. And in this particular case, Judge Chutkin down in Washington, D.C., has been a very vocal proponent of exactly this philosophy. It doesn't matter that there is a campaign happening outside the walls of the courtroom. And it doesn't matter that the defendant in this case is a participant at a high profile in those election activities. Within the walls of the courtroom, all that matters is the law. And it's going to be applied fairly, and it's going to be applied with, with justice. Now, we can, as I said at the top of this segment, There are definitely criticisms to bring against that kind of position and whether or not historically that has been the case, particularly for the most vulnerable in our society. But at this particular moment, I think if we're going to move into new election cycles, we have to let the rule of law work. Yeah, and we're in this weird flip-floppy thing where we have liberals or Democrats talking about the rule of law when normally this is a Republican talking point. Will it hurt Donald Trump? I'm not going to make any predictions, and people are not smart who discount how he's able to bounce back from seemingly crazy things. I mean, he's been fundraising off of this and continuing to get good numbers in the polls. Dan, you mentioned Mike Pence and Chris Christie. I watched the Republican debate earlier this month, and they got boos for those lines from some in the audience. We wrote an editorial over the summer, thank God for Mike Pence for doing what he did do on January 6th. He uh, made an appearance at the the Catholic Napa Institute event over the summer, and I had listened to his remarks there, and he talked about that, and I've heard him say the same thing on the campaign trail. Yeah, it, it hasn't been helpful for him to talk about that his, and look at his poll numbers. So I think there's a lot to still be concerned about. And it's important, I think, for us, I'm sure we'll be returning to this topic here at the Francis Effect, but for all Catholics and Americans to follow this carefully and closely. I'm really glad for you to bring up the piece about Mike Pence. What he did was the bare minimum that should have been done. And what concerns me right now is that there is an entire 
one half of our functional electorate because really we're, we're a two-party system in America. The third parties don't really matter. And so we're looking at Democrats and Republicans helping to choose the leadership of our country. And there is fully one entire side of that process that has given itself over to a cult of personality. As many criticisms as you can bring against the Democrats on policy levels, we don't have one functional personality and I say we very loosely here, I caucus with the Democrats, but I'm not one myself. But we, in the loosest sense, don't have some kind of figurehead that calls our shots. We are a contentious bunch in this loose consortium on the the progressive and left side of the aisle. But I'm very concerned, particularly in looking at the debate from last week, just the way in which, as you've said, there is a real hesitancy to criticize publicly anything that Donald Trump has done. And when there is public criticism, there is intense backlash. So we are seeing market forces in real time bring one party into a very dangerous and unseemly condition. Yeah, I also think that there's a trend that's happening, and I haven't been able to exactly identify a, a good title or a kind of analog to, to express what, what's going on. The closest I've come to is like blood sport, that politics is no longer about who has the best ideas, who's party platform or individual campaign platform best serves whomever. You could be utilitarian and say the most people most effectively, or you can make it very partisan, my particular interest group or what have you. That's the way politics has been played for 200 plus years in this country. Whether you're a Whig or you're a Democrat or Republican, and those various parties have changed in their identities and their platforms and their affiliations. And so right now, it's like, it's my team. That's the attitude. And you see that, I think, David, to your point, I think there's a certain irony in right-leaning people accusing Democrats of some sort of like major sort of defense of their own or something like this. I see this play out sometimes, like they're the ones who are like ganging up on quote unquote everybody else. And yet because of the very nature of the coalition of the Democratic Party, you have a very broad tent. It's a huge tent. And that's a that's a a blessing and it's a liability. And the liability is you have to always form a sort of parliamentary coalition among very different groups. So that's hard to do. Whereas, as you say, there's been this cult of personality, certainly in the Republican Party. And the danger there is it's become, I defend my guy, my team, my coach, my quarterback at all costs. And and therefore, one's self-interests are out the window, one's the utilitarian or kind of communitarian sense of what's right gets thrown out the window. And so it, the problem is with sports, there's very little at stake. There's pride. There might be a like a side bet you make for the Super Bowl. But you know what? The season comes and goes and the next season comes along. And yet now, even the political cycle is treated as a new season. Like we're gearing up for the political Olympics. Maybe I'm forming a column here in my extroversion. <laughs> like I'm thinking of this maybe in ways I had it before. The other thing that strikes me, too, about all of this is there have already been hundreds of people prosecuted successfully by the Justice Department for their involvement at the invasion of the Capitol on January 6, 2021. And the fact that that these folks are serving, many of them are, are on parole or are serving prison time, some have been convicted of sedition, and that the person who is effectively the ringleader or in the RICO analog, the mafia boss is potentially going to get away with this is just not tenable. So I think that's what we need to see play out. I think people have said, what happens if he's actually prosecuted or sent to prison? I'm like, what happens if he's actually pardoned or is reelected and tries to pardon himself? No matter how you slice it, 
because of the situation in which we find ourselves, because of this particular former president and his party affiliation and the cult of personality, we are facing a constitutional crisis one way or the other. We are. And of course, as I said, this is going to continue to play out in the months ahead as we move towards the election cycle or season, as you're calling it, Dan. So, of course, here at the Francis Effect, we'll continue to cover that going forward. But for now, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Tomorrow, Friday, September 1st, marks the start of the annual Season of Creation celebration, which runs until the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi on October 4th. Each year, people of faith across denominations and religious traditions commemorate the community of creation, what Pope Francis calls our common home, through prayer, reflection, and action. This year's season of creation follows the hottest summer in recorded history, the continued response to and assessment of the terrifying and deadly wildfires in Hawaii, ongoing drought in parts of the West and Southwest United States, dying coral reefs off the coast of the United States occasioned by rising sea temperatures, growing numbers of endangered and extinct species, wildfire smoke covering the Midwest and East Coast of the U.S., an uncommon West Coast hurricane hit California. California last week, and as we record today, another hurricane is heading for Florida, among many other ecological signs of our times. While the world continues to feel the effects of dramatic climate change, some continue to doubt or ignore the human-caused impacts on the environment. For example, during last week's Republican presidential debate, the 38-year-old technology millionaire Vivek Ramaswamy proudly declared that, quote, the climate change agenda is a hoax, unquote. We've talked about climate change and the faith implications of it on this podcast many times before, and yet... Here we are again. Dan, this is obviously a topic of great interest to you. You've written many columns about climate change, taught courses, and given lectures on eco-spirituality, and published a scholarly book on the theology of creation. So why do you think this is important to talk about now? Is there anything new going on here? I think the first way I would respond to your question, David, is to quote a contemporary prophet in our own midst, and, and that is Greta Thunberg, the young activist, a European activist. In January of 2019, she gave a speech at the World Economics Forum in Davos, and the title of that speech was Our House is on Fire, and she begins her remarks this way, Our house is on fire. I am here to say our house is on fire. And she ends her speech with what is now a very famous quote of hers. She says, Adults keep saying, we owe it to the young people to give them hope, but I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day, and then I want you to act. I want you to act as you would in a crisis. I want you to act as if our house is on fire, because it is. I've been thinking about that speech of Ms. Thunberg's for many months, actually, throughout the summer, in the scorching heat, in the kind of 
litany of uh, horrors that you summarized there for us, David. We're just starting to enter hurricane season, something that's begun a few weeks earlier every year, it seems, certainly on the East Coast with the Atlantic season. We had this unusual hurricane on the West Coast a few weeks ago, these horrific wildfires in Maui that killed hundreds of people. And we're just talking about the U.S., those examples you gave us, David, are just things in the United States. So let alone what's going on, the Canadian wildfires, we can add droughts around the globe. You know, the coral reef um, dying is very troubling for reasons that science reporters have been highlighting, but it's not the kind of sexy, salacious, sort of headline-grabbing sort of information that captures the news cycle in a way that, for instance, a former president of the United States being indicted for the fourth time does. And yet, I believe Greta Thunberg is exactly correct. Our house is on fire. (laughs) So when you hear people like this Republican presidential aspirant, Vivek Ramakswamy, saying things like climate change is a hoax, that should be automatically disqualifying. We don't have time for this kind of nonsense. And this guy's younger than me. He knows better. And as some political commentators have highlighted about, at least about his candidacy, is that they think this is all part of a money grab scheme that he's trying to get a lot of attention, that he doesn't have a real chance of being the Republican candidate. I don't know if that's true or not. I think Donald Trump blew up any kind of possibility of saying somebody is or isn't a serious candidate. Everyone is until they're not. But I do think that line of thinking, that sort of discourse, even if it's flip, is incredibly dangerous at this point. So why do we need to talk about this still? Because our house is on fire, and it's never been more apparent, I think, than what we've seen with these terrible records that have been broken this summer. You know, I was in San Antonio this weekend to teach a course, and I was told by local folks down there that was the 59th day in a row that was over 100 degrees the first day I got there. So this is real, and calling it a hoax, ignoring it, pretending it away, wishing it away is not going to help us. Yeah, as someone who follows the news, you can't miss that they are headlines now. The climate and weather-related news, whether it's fires or heat or destruction of other of coral reefs or other things it's it's headline news and our publication has long had this section earthbeat and this publication this website that looks at the intersection between climate and our faith and we have a pope who has been bringing it to our attention that this these things are related so for us we've been saying hey if people are finally catching up now that it's affecting them and they're stuck inside their air conditioned homes and that's one thing that i guess i I'm struck by here in Chicago just last week, we had some record-breaking heat with the heat index. It was 118 one day. And just how, you know, developing worlds our situation is. I'm inside my air-conditioned home slash office and that this is really starting to affect Westerners and other middle-class people. But the people who are getting hurt the most by this are, as usual, the poor. So we had the news this summer. It was a flippant one line from the Pope that he is writing a follow-up or a second part to Laudato Si. We don't know a whole lot else about it, except that I think he did mention that it's going to be related to much of the weather news that's been happening. So Laudato Si is an extremely important document. It talks about more than climate change. Everyone who has hasn't read it, should be reading it, and especially should be reading it as we get prepared for whatever comes next from Pope Francis on this topic. But yeah, I'm praying today, especially for everyone in Florida as the hurricane prepares to hit there. And I think we're just getting used to, or sadly, these extreme weather events. Well, and I I think one thing that 
we often see across the Catholic spectrum is a kind of denialism or a kind of entrenched market-based thinking that wants to put blinders on and to say, oh, there have always been fluctuations in the climate. And they look at the available data and they say, look, there have been spikes before. And there's a real refusal to grasp the ways in which humanity is involved in the increasing threat to humanity. And part of that, I think, is theological. Part of it, I think, is people saying, we were given dominion. And we, God is in control of everything, and so God will certainly not let humanity destroy itself. And this is why I think your reminder of Greta Thunberg's words, Dan, that reminder is so important to us. We are in or perhaps past a moment where something can be done to stave off the worst of these effects. And I'm thinking right now of a book released a couple of years ago by my friend and colleague Timothy K. Beale, When Time is Short, and his book basically says, maybe we're not about abating the climate crisis anymore. Maybe we are like the chaplain that enters the room in hospice and tries to make the patient as comfortable as possible, creating a kind of palliative hope. I'm not quite there yet, but I was very struck by that sort of notion that maybe we're not trying to fix this anymore because maybe the point of tipping has been reached, and now we're thinking about how do we make the what is to come as humane as possible. Sadly, I don't even think that we're equipped to have that discussion or to do that. No, it's very disturbing to think about. I think there's a defaulted way of thinking that falls along those lines, right? And Pope Francis warns about this in Laudato Si. It's one of his recurring themes. It's something that came up as well in the Joy of the Gospel where he says, it can be easy to—I'm paraphrasing here, of course—it can be easy to be overwhelmed by things of such magnitude, and in the face of that, just be sort of paralyzed and do nothing. And so I think that leads to the sort of palliative care sort of analogy that you're introducing here. And yet, Pope Francis also talks about something that John Paul II talks about, which is the reality of intergenerational justice in our tradition, which is, okay, I'm 40, right? And we won't have to disclose your guys' ages. You're a few years older than me, respectively. But we're even if, if the earth was to end a habitable sort of context for humans in my lifetime, I've already lived many decades of a pretty good quality of life. But there are people like my nieces and nephews and my future grand nieces and nephews and other relatives and people who are strangers and people who are being born today for whom their whole life is going to be a climate hellscape. And I think that cost is not being considered. And that's a tremendous sin. That's a tremendous evil that we are all implied or implicated in, rather. I keep thinking about the energy cycle cost, too. And Heidi, you're talking about what it's like for us to be in, in what's sometimes referred to as developed countries or the global north, certainly in an affluent society like the United States, where we have, even for those who are housing insecure, there are oftentimes cooling centers and cities set up. I know of some parishes, for instance, in the Northeast that do that, that can provide AC for people so they can cool down and not risk death or heat stroke or that sort of thing. But I'm thinking about the energy cycle and its costs on two levels. On the one hand, I've been thinking a lot this summer about the cost of electricity, both financially, that it's a luxury, even in our own otherwise affluent society, those electric bills, those gas bills are expensive if you're running your AC for the majority of the day or through the night. 
And some people can afford to do that. And I suppose that's people have to make those calls on a financial basis. But then there's the environmental cost of running your AC all day or at a colder temperature. And I've been really struggling with this myself. I try, I, I travel a lot. Listeners know that. So I try to offset my carbon footprint in other ways because of the biggest sort of chunk of my own CO2 emissions are around air travel because of places that I can't get to otherwise or just for timing reasons have to travel that way. So I try to, when the weather is cooperative, I bike or I use an electric scooter to commute to the campus and to get around. I, I, I When I lived in Chicago, I walked to my office, to campus, and I use public trans- transportation as much as possible. I prefer that. But it's not enough. And so I've been thinking about that. Even things like charging an electric scooter, it's not that much electricity. It's certainly better in the kind of aggregate than burning fossil fuels to go the same distance. But I think the cost thing becomes a real problem. And I don't know how many people are taking that into consideration or are forced to. Yeah, I was just reading an article today about how so much of our energy consumption that contributes to climate change is things that maybe we don't think about. And air travel is one of them, as is eating meat, uh, is a huge contributor. It's something our family has tried to work on. I think it's really important for people to make personal changes sort of in solidarity. And lots of people making individual choices can have an effect. But in the end, it's going to be political decisions and a whole culture deciding what we're going to do about this. And I think this is one of those places where our faith has a lot to say to us. And David, you pointed out how sometimes it can be erroneously misinterpreted scripture to justify some things that are not good. But I'm I'm grateful that our faith and our Pope is a leader on this issue and hope to just con- to continue to bring some light to that. The connection between climate change and the issue of migrants in our world is huge. And so there's overlapping issues as well. So, And that's something Pope Francis, to that point, has talked about in terms of environmental refugees. In 2015, this was a relatively new concept. Today, it's a sad reality in lots of places of our world. I'm reminded as well, this week as we're recording, the latest issue of the New Yorker magazine, the Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist Ronan Farrow has a very interesting piece about Elon Musk. It centers around Elon Musk's is that how you say it? Musk's is. Yeah, that's a mouthful. You know, space projects, including this internet company he has that has launched more than 4,000 small satellites in, in, in space around the Earth. There are pros and cons to that. But one of the interesting things that's implied by this study of one tech billionaire and the outsized influence that he has is an interesting comment that Pharaoh makes about in societies in which the state has failed to invest in really important exploratory, scientific, and humanitarian efforts, then there's a vacuum that gets filled by these kind of proprietors. So if you think, for instance, certain infrastructure has not been attended to sufficiently, I would say, in the United States. And so you have things like Amazon with its next day and one day delivery, creating a whole fleet of alternative delivery systems, whether it's the vans, or at one point they were talking about drones delivering packages, they have their own air fleet to transport things, competing with both private sector folks like FedEx and UPS, as well as the USPS. And so you have that with Jeff Bezos. With Musk, you have the decline of NASA from the peak in the mid to late 60s, 
to the ending of the lunar program in the early 1970s of NASA. And so there's been this gap where when it comes to space exploration, research, science, travel, these sorts of things, it's been left to people like Elon Musk and his SpaceX company. We see the same thing too with electronic cars and with Tesla and, and so on and so on. I bring this up because it, it's one of these things where if, you know, one of the biggest talking points right now is about this individual benefit to not paying taxes, right? Or to, that's the that's a big rally cry, get government off my back. I saw a horrible bumper sticker a few weeks back over this, during the summer that said something like taxes equal theft. And that's just simply not true. You need to have the common good, the common wheel, as it were, to support the whole community. And there are things that we all benefit from, but nobody wants to pay for. And so I think there's a risk here with climate as well, that we're not going to be able through capitalism to get ourselves out of this. And to your point, Heidi, that was a little bit of a long-winded kind of reflection, but the Ronan Farrell thing came to mind because of how there are institutional things that have to be addressed, and it needs to be addressed at the governmental level. Because even if there were a kind of green Tesla savior, Elon Musk to come in as a billionaire, that system is not sustainable either. That's not desirable. So what are we going to do about this? Yes, on the individual level, but how do we hold the collective to account? Yeah, just one other thing that I am following with a lot of interest was this trial in Montana that the judge yes. has decided to go forward in which young people are literally suing their state, saying that they have a constitutional right to you know, life in a clean environment. And so I think that's something else that is a creative way that politics is kind or the state is trying to respond to this issue. But again, I do take comfort in finding encouragement from our faith. And I know with the season of creation coming in September at, at NCR, they're going to do a series of creature features that'll connect this to beyond the human impact as well. So so it's definitely something that is, a, is an important intersection between what's going on in our world and in our church. As listeners know, I am not a cradle Catholic. I converted to Catholicism in my 30s, and one of the things that drew me to the Church was the hope that it was an institution that could actually stand against the vagaries of transnational capitalism. I have been very pleased by Pope Francis trying to step into the fore and being on the vanguard of bringing these issues. I just hope that rank-and-file Catholics and bishops can follow suit, because it will really take an effort of all of us to begin to move the needle on these questions. Like both Heidi and Father Dan, I am concerned about these issues. Listeners, we know that you are too. Doing what you can individually is vital and important, but also please continue to put pressure, just as we mentioned in, in Montana, on our government, on our leaders to step in and to actually make substantive change. The time for words is over, <laughs> as we said at the top of this segment, and now we really need both for ourselves, but also, as Father Dan pointed out, for future generations, we need to be taking dramatic and radical steps now. Unfortunately, I'm sure that we'll be coming back to this issue and many others that we've talked about on the program today. We are so glad to be in Season 13, and listeners, we are so glad that you are on this journey with us. We will be back in two weeks. You have been listening to The Francis Effect. On behalf of Father Dan and Heidi, thank you, and we'll see you soon. The 
Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show was made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.